I think the papers are brilliant and also quite brave. I think the way you talk about your counter transfer reactions, but also the way you you bring in sort of your institutional experiences, your experiences in training, your relationships to your colleagues, both real and fantasized, right? It's all mm-hmm. it's all there in this way that I think truly great analytic papers are. And, but also with the added dimension of talking about like how the sausage gets made in terms of the training process, which is something that I feel like there should be more of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it, it's, it, it, the thing that I found myself thinking about again and again in, in new ways because of what you wrote w- were the, we're thinking about the impulses behind the desire to care, mm. right? Or behind mm. the desire to enter the caring profession and how when those are, coexist with either uninterrogated institutional aspects or uninterrogated sort of like resistances or, you know, negative reactions to people which are understandable and inevitable, that that produces these sort of morbid symptom formations of, of neglect or of, of, of mm. you know, of, of, of quote unquote tough love that's actually just sort of tough, et cetera. And, and it's, right. with that, it's with that in mind that I, I wanted to, to share this one story with you because I think it kind of tracks and I, just, but, but the, the, the TLDR here is that at, at one point during my, uh, my academic, uh, my analytic training, which I didn't, I completed, but I didn't, you know, get certified, right? It's right. Uh, during one of the case conferences that we did, I had a, a good friend talking about uh, a work with a patient uh, who it, it had arrived at an impasse where for reasons both sort of like objectively material, but also kind of singular to the relationship between the analyst and, and uh, her client, the analyst could not help her, mm. right? And it, it terminated badly. Mm. through no fault of her own it was but but it really felt like i mean who knows we could probably you know she was herself interrogating this right but it it was sort of the consensus of everyone in the room that she was doing the right thing and had done the right thing and this was a painful experience that she was 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 sharing one of my one of the people in my cadre just got extremely like began with interventions that were sort of theoretical but that got increasingly personally sort of like uh i guess Mm. in terms of how she had presumably failed this patient or abandon this patient. And mm. it, it, apart from having these other sort of like agonistic dynamics, like this person is sharing and, and you know, is actually self-criticizing and what are you doing? What are you enacting here doing this? It, it became very, it was so emotionally intense that at some point, it, and it was also all these indications of the collective we, like, well, if we are going to become analysts, if we are going to do care, then we, there has to be no limit. We have to be willing to do all these things, right? And mm. I remember... It, when it came my turn to say something, invoking an experience that I'd had during my my four or five years working in a, you know, doing weekly overnights in a homeless shelter, right? And mm. one of the things that had happened uh, in this in this shelter in, in the Northeast was that during the winter, we existed in a very difficult relationship to state mandates and to how many beds we could fill. Mm. And there was a lot of, you know, difficult, it was a wonderful shelter, it was all student run, it was just an amazing institution, and, and actually in the basement of a Lutheran church. Uh, but, but one of the deals was that when we reached capacity, unless there was a strictly countervailing, explicit time-bound order from the mayor because of a weather event, we couldn't roll out additional cots. Right. And it was very much the case also that even if we had wanted to have these additional people in, there were people in the neighborhood, homeowners, like stakeholders mm-hmm. in the real estate who would have immediately called the fire marshal and gotten us shut down. Mm-hmm. And so this produced some very difficult scenes too. Like I remember one man, like uh, his, his wife was, he, he gave up his place uh, in the queue so that his wife would go inside and then he slept outside mm-hmm. on the grate and we brought him blankets and stuff. Like mm-hmm. really 
it was fucking difficult stuff, right? When I share this example, and I told this this colleague, like this was a situation in which we were we were doing literal triage with a finite number of beds, mm-hmm. and it was the question of either do we give do we like break the law so to speak one night and then lose the shelter, or do we do the best that we can by like running out you know and it's an overnight shift so we bring out soup and coffee and trying to keep people warm and alive. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And uh, his reaction was that I can't believe you turned people away. This is, you, you consigned these people to freezing to death. How could you have done this? But I remember being like, but there, what if there are people who you cannot help? What, what if some, one of the problems here like, is, is, is the fantasy that you have to be able to help everyone and rise to that? Right. And, and ultimately, ultimately, the conversation, which is another interesting feature of this, went in another direction where he was able to agree, okay, maybe in an example where someone is dealing with a drug addiction and they overdose, it's not the clinician's quote-unquote fault if they do, because drugs are quote-unquote real. But in terms of other things, you have to limitlessly give. And there was something about that to me that it's, I found myself, it's an experience that I actually repressed for many years. It was very unpleasant, right? Uh, you, and, you told me the story only a few years ago when it like kind of surfaced for you. But it came up again in reading this paper yeah. because it made me think mm-hmm. again about not just the, the real world limits of, of, of care under the rationing of care as you describe it under the mm-hmm. system that we currently have and all its cruelties, but also in terms of like negotiating our fantasies of being able to care for everyone or like dealing with the uh-huh. fact that we can't and how we then, that produces a type of anger and frustration that is, is very rarely self-directed. It, it outs at other people. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't know, I, I found myself thinking about all that again because of the stakes and the dynamics of the papers that you you shared with us. You know, it, it's interesting. It makes me think of a, back when I had just started uh, some homeless services at the mental health center where I was working, this was in a, a kind of a neighboring city of Denver and um, where they claimed to not have homelessness, uh, which was this illusion that they kind of um, sustained through just um, hideous policies and inaction. And they had this kind of ragtag nonprofit that would, um, when there were inclement weather, cold weather events, they would activate and then they would dispense with vouchers to motels. And that was the extent of sort of homeless interventions for folks. And then the police department um, decided that they were going to start this outreach van to parole the streets during cold weather events to kind of scoop up folks that weren't sheltered, Mm. I guess, ostensibly because they assumed that if they weren't sheltered, it's because they couldn't get to shelter. And so the police were going to, you know, get them in a van and get them someplace. And, you know, we were all like, that's awful. (laughs) It's an awful idea. The police should not be leading this task. First of all, if they want to throw money into it, fine, but get out of the way, you know? And so you know, we had limited power, obviously, but as kind of a compromise, we were able to at least conduct trainings for all of the folks that were going to be staffing this outreach van, mm-hmm. um, outreach workers, nurses, another like a prescriber from the medical clinic, a medical clinic. And so as we were doing kind of basic outreach and engagement training for these folks, one of the uh, nurses said that, you know, if she encountered someone who refused to get on the van and 
didn't want to leave their encampment, she would just put them on a psychiatric hold. Because obviously, if they were refusing to leave dangerously cold weather for shelter, that means that they're gravely disabled or a risk to themselves or, you know, two of the three sort of criteria to put somebody on a psychiatric hold and place them in a hospital for, you know, maybe 72 hours unless it's prematurely dropped. And she was very smug and very, very pleased with herself that she sort of found this ethical workaround. And, you know, we tried to explain that you, you, you can't do that. Um, not, I mean, I, I'm sympathetic with wanting to, to save and rescue, but, but actually if you, if you rip someone from their, their living situation and from their possessions and toss them into a system that hates them and doesn't want them there, the emergency department, they will be mistreated and then they will be kicked back out into the streets without any resources um, after they've been maybe medically cleared. And that's loose. I mean, I've seen people who had actual medical emergency medical needs still be dismissed out into the world. This is traumatic. Um, and it was so difficult for her to appreciate this kind of deeply complex situation. Um, but I don't know, Patrick, I mean, it makes me think of that situation and uh, the really, the impossible binds that we're all placed in when we're working with these kinds of folks and these kinds of very sick systems. There's something about, too, the the way you describe Leona in the, in the paper, right, that um, mm-hmm. is, it's not that you, you, you quote unquote, give her dignity, you acknowledge her as a dignified subject, right? And and yeah. and, and part of that involves recognizing that a, a hurdle for her or that one of the challenges of her finding housing for any long term is her desire to literally help other people, which causes exactly. her to bring other people in, which causes her then to lose housing. Right. That's right. There is something, I think, very, I'm, I'm trying to pick the word here, like attuned, but also that requires a type of epistemic and moral humility at the same time to see the person that you are trying to help and which and a person whom all these other systems are, are t- telling you to see as abjected. Yeah as mm. actually having an impulse that is very similar to yours. Right. And 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 maybe also too that they may have certain capacities to help other people in ways that you can't, right? Or that we and and that is itself right. a a recognition that levels or does something against this binary hierarchy of like I'm the housed clinician who's going to offer you this emergency case person who's otherwise quite right. flying through the cracks like I'm going to give you something it 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 involved a sort of recognition of something in the self as well as of the other which seemed really just a profound move in, in, in the argument of the paper but just in its own right too well and I think I'm you know as I reflect more and more on that on, on this uh, experience with her uh, I, I can't help but imagine that I felt a certain envy for her mm-hmm. capaciousness. I mean, she was willing to to actually take people into her own home. Mm-hmm. I was then. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not letting folks come into my home. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> which is fundamentally what is needed. How do you help the homeless? House them. Yeah. You know, get them housed. So she had a sort of a willingness and an openness that I lacked.
You're listening to Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin. I'm Patrick Blanchfield. And today I am really delighted to introduce Brian Go-Smith. Brian is a psychoanalyst and clinical social worker in Denver, Colorado. He received his MSW from the University of Iowa and completed postgraduate training at the Denver Institute for Psychoanalysis, where he's now on faculty. He's worked in the mental health field for 20 years, first in residential and hospital settings, and later as director of adult intensive services at a local community mental health center before moving into private practice in 2018. Brian is a past president of the Colorado Society for Clinical Social Work and the current president of the American Association for Psychoanalysis in Clinical Social Work. His article, This Couch Has Bedbugs, on the psychoanalysis of homelessness and the homelessness of psychoanalysis, was published in the Clinical Social Work Journal in 2018. And in October of this year, he gave an expanded talk on this paper for the annual Sue Fairbanks Lecture in Psychoanalytic Knowledge at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's also on faculty. Brian will be giving the Gertrude and Ernest Tico Memorial Lecture at the National Meeting of the American Psychoanalytic Association in New York this February with his paper, Porosity and Preoccupation, Queer Thoughts on Psychoanalytic Care. And it's these two papers, um, primarily the first one, that we are going to talk with Brian about today. Brian, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So let's get into it. I want to ask you first a question that that we frequently ask clinicians, academics, guests, um, and feel free to take it in any direction that you like. Can you tell us a little bit about your your path to psychoanalysis, your relationship with it? Mm-hmm. Mine is through treatment uh, and um, and has really stayed kind of at the core for me of my my relationship with psychoanalysis is is its clinical use. And so I was an undergrad in the religion philosophy department and uh, and then simultaneously working in this residential facility for uh, abused children and felt this deep uh, disconnect between kind of this realm of of theory and this experience of getting spit on and assaulted, you know, and so like praxis and ultimately decided to to look into getting an MSW that felt like a a useful bridge between the two. And and, um, so my advisor uh, in my undergrad had connected me with a, a colleague of hers who's a psychotherapist and a clinical social worker who is, I now know, the sort of lone psychoanalytically oriented therapist in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which is where I lived and worked and was going to school. And um, so by the time we coordinated our schedules to meet to like talk about MSW programs, I mean, I think it was actually a couple months before we were able to, I really had started to struggle mightily uh, with these children. I mean, I was getting extremely stirred up. And I and I sort of knew I needed to return to therapy. I had been in therapy with a number of different types of people over the years. So when I met with her, we talked shop a bit, and then I said, "No, you're taking new patients." And um, and I ended up working with her for several years in a twice a week psychodynamic treatment, um, which was, I mean, it saved my life. And and she also introduced me to the literature and to professional organizations like AAPCSW and. 
you know, it really was such a, a warm relationship and she moved and I moved and we kept meeting by phone. But then when, ultimately when I relocated to Denver, I thought, oh, I, I think I'm ready for an analysis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the rest is history. Obviously, after I got out here, I got connected to the community in Denver and, and um, kind of crawled into more managerial roles in community mental health, which I, I always thought about very psychoanalytically. I mean, I really, I, I just, I think psychoanalytic ideas are so portable and are so useful in really everywhere. So I felt still very analytically nourished in a less clinical role, um, but it started to kind of get burned out. The system I was in was unwell and transitioning and the community where I worked was also pretty unwell and hateful. And um, so that's when I chose to go into training, which I've been pondering for a very long time and, here I am. I could, I think we can see some of those, the ways that you're talking about psychoanalysis as portable, I think is really, really useful. And I, I can see you, you applying it in, in this paper that we want to get into, um, to institutional structures, mm-hmm. to, to the field of psychoanalysis itself. So the essay that we want to spend most of today talking about, um, you published in 2017, This Couch Has Bedbugs on the Psychoanalysis of Homelessness and the Homelessness of Psychoanalysis. When you sent it to, you know, it really, it it like knocked the wind out of me. It's a really, it's a beautiful and really painful piece of writing that centers around a case study of a patient of yours who, who you term Leona, who you name Leona. So before we get into some more detailed questions, because we have a lot of them, can you tell our listeners a little bit about this case, especially about the dynamics of your relationship with Leona? Um, Like, so Mm -hmm. who was she? What problems did she face? Um, What did you both feel or expect going into the process? So Leona... um was a client at this community mental health clinic where I worked, um, who I guess I would say she had become kind of the identified patient of the community or, you know, like family therapists would call her the symptomatic child yeah. of, of the system. So she'd been at the center for 20 some years when I met her, I had been there for a few years as a therapist. And then I had just started this, this role as a, new, a manager of this new clinical outreach team. And this was before the center or really even the state of Colorado had funding for ACT teams, assertive community treatment teams, which came later. So this was kind of our, our first stab at uh, community-based uh, work with master's level clinicians, but who would be working with these very difficult to reach clients who just couldn't get into the office, couldn't sort of tolerate being treated in a more traditional way, struggling with a lot of psychosocial stressors. And this is also when it kind of gave rise to the homeless services programs at our mm-hmm. at our clinic. Um, and so, you know, Leona had had um, a loss about a year prior. Her partner had died. She had had a gastric bypass procedure a few years before that. And so her, her medicines weren't metabolizing. And so she wasn't really kind of glued together. And she was diagnosed with bipolar one and, and had become incredibly manic. And so she was just kind of really blowing up out in the world. I mean, getting kicked out at every motel, which is where she could get sort of housed. She had been kicked out of her apartment for housing homeless folks, for letting people stay with her. And she would just bounce from motel to motel to motel. I think she was banned from two of the hospitals. She was banned from convenience stores. 
I mean, she just, there was, the, the whole city had turned against her fundamentally. And our clinic was starting to turn against her. Her therapist had tried to get her into an assisted living. She refused. She would come into the clinic and threaten people and just, you know, make, make a scene. And so they were about to take the fairly unusual step of trying to, you know, ban her from care, really. And this, the medical director and I both kind of grandiosely swept in and said, you know, we'll, we'll treat her. (laughs) So that was the origin of, of how that began is I I sort of felt this, my own kind of manic impulse to save the day. And, you know, I think probably lap my colleagues, um, be impressive for my, my new staff, uh, many of whom I was, you know, clinically supervising show that I still had, I still had it, you know, clinically, I wasn't sort of one of those burned out therapists who got, became a manager because I didn't feel that way. So that's how she and I uh, came to meet one another. And, um, and I would say most of my work for about a year was kind of chasing her out in the world, um, appeasing disgruntled motel managers, kind of running interference with different community players we we were her payee, which means we get her SSDI check and kind of manage her expenses and then give her an allowance. So I would be running back and forth to the payee to get cash, to pay off motels. And inevitably, she would stay in a motel for maybe a week before she would get kicked out. Um, she'd trash the place. She'd let people stay with her. Um, it was extraordinarily trying. And, and really, no, I mean, no so-called therapy. I mean, she wouldn't come into the office and sit down and, and talk about her trauma with me or something like that. It was a very alive sort of provisional treatment relationship. So can, can you walk us a little bit through the course of treatment? You know, some of the sources of, of friction that you experienced and, and also, I mean, you describe like a bunch of, I mean, you were just using the language of kind of like blowing up and that, that happens a bunch in, in this essay mm-hmm. that, you know, these blowing up breakthroughs, um, but, but some of those things that happened along the way. Yeah. I mean, there was sort of an abundance of friction, moments of friction, um, both between Leona and me, Leona and others. And, and like within myself, I think, um, I mean, this is such a challenging moment in my, kind of my development, you know, sure. I mean, being in a, a pretty anti-analytic practice setting, um, but feeling so deeply identified as an analytic person. So I felt a ton of pressure to really nail the landing, um, look impressive to my colleagues, like I said. And, and you know, I really wanted to show how I was applying these kind of psychoanalytic ideas, specifically around clinical case management. Yeah, uh, Joel Cantor, who's a colleague and mentor of mine, he's written, you know, prolifically about clinical case management using a really Winnicottian idiom. And we can maybe get into some of the yeah, for sure. specifics of that a bit later, but, but I had gotten so immersed in that, in that literature on, um, you know, sort of adapting these psychoanalytic ideas to community-based social work. And so an example of one of the times, and I, I write about it in the paper, you know, I, I found her at the motel where she had been staying and, you know, like the door is wide open, the place is completely trashed, it smells horrible, there's stacks of everything everywhere, there's, you know, magazines and porn and Bibles and, you know, emptied food and pill bottles and, and it was just a complete mess. And she had to leave. She had, I mean, I think we probably had an hour before 
the police would have been called, let's say. And um, I had brought garbage bags and, and, you know, I was trying to get her to help me clean up and she just couldn't. So I cleaned up her motel room for her and I packed her into my car to drive her to the next motel. And, um, and this was the point when she, she reassured me that she did not have bed bugs, but she told me that her, her boyfriend did. And I had agreed to take in a bunch of his shit. And, you know, I started shaking <laughs> in my fucking Corolla, you know, driving to the, the next shitty motel with just, I mean, brimming with everything. Cause she wouldn't let me throw anything away. She wanted to keep everything because she had to distribute it to, you know, the citizens of the city and, and who the hell was I to, to just treat it like trash. Sure. So I was convinced that my car was now infested with bed bugs. And, you know, I'd heard about bed bugs from, I mean, staff meetings would just get hijacked with talk of bed bugs. And I always had this kind of, you know, self-righteous, like, oh, it's not going to happen to me. And, um, you know, or I'd just be really intellectual about like, wow, look at these, look at these meetings getting just totally overrun with the fear of being infested by our clients yeah. and like, like the, that, like our clients following us home um, in, in these critters. Um, and now it was mine to sort of deal with. And uh, I, I was just completely humiliated. There was this probably bullshit spray, you know, that you could like claim to spray away the bed bugs. And I was doused my car. And, but as I say in my paper, I mean, I think this was the first time that I was really like very aware of hating Liana. I mean, I hated her. Mm-hmm. And uh, ultimately, I was able to get a, a landlady that we had worked with, with some success for other really tricky clients to agree to let Leona move into this not great apartment. And um, Leona wasn't pleased. I mean, there wasn't like there was like um, the, the faucet was leaking and there wasn't there weren't like apartment numbers on the door. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I've just got you shelter. Like, what's the problem? You know, but she just sort of systematically started to retaliate um, by letting people stay with her, like shoved her mattress out on the balcony and graffitied all over the door. This kind of bizarre, you know, both the apartment number, but also lots of other cryptic messages. And so the landlady at one point sent me a fax of, of a picture of all of this and said, you know, she's got to be out or I'm going to evict her and she's got to get rid of these people or I'm going to evict her. So I was terrified. I mean, like I, the last thing I wanted was for an eviction record to follow Leona. Cause that would make housing her in a more permanent way next to impossible. Mm-hmm. I mean, other than having a felony, I mean, an eviction history is just, you know, uh, kind of a, a housing death sentence. <laughs> so I was meeting with her that day and, you know, she's sitting in my office and I'm like, listen, you got to let, you got to get these folks out. You're not going to be able to stay. And she just, she refused. And, um, I blew up. <laughs> I, I completely lost it. I, I, um, slammed my fist on the desk and I just shouted, like, don't you know how fucking hard I've been working for you? Um, and she sort of froze and just looked at me blinking and, and then, uh, said that she, she thought she should probably leave my office. And I said, that's true. You should, uh, and I was terrified of what had happened. I mean, I was sure I was sure that I was going to get fired or written up or she would file a grievance with the licensing board or any number of things. I mean, it was a pretty gnarly, um, you know, experience for, for me to have blown up at her. But she called later, maybe an hour later and said, OK, um, I've asked them to leave. 
And uh, so she was able to stay maybe another week before something else happened and then she got kicked out. But um, but it was a point at which when I was writing this paper up um, originally for the when I was a, f- a fellow with the American Psychoanalytic and I was first putting this together, I had this parapraxis as I was writing about this episode. And uh, and I wrote instead of leave my office, I wrote leave her office. And, and it just, it really, I mean, it really captures a, I think a core thesis of the paper, which is she had to have power over me. She had to discover that she could move me. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I mean, I, and I, you know, I think upon sort of apprehending that we were then able to really work, work together. Um, and there was just a deeper trust. And so, you know, following that, you know, there's several other hiccups and some that I elaborate in the paper a lot. I actually ended up leaving out because it's just like how many more horror stories does the reader need to encounter to sort of get it. But um, ultimately, she she did end up getting settled into an assisted living. And um, uh, last I heard, she was in one of the nicer, more independent living places in the city and I think has been stable for years now. That's that's truly remarkable. And I, I just want to recommend to everyone uh, who can access the paper to, to read it because your, your description, it's, I, I felt myself like my, my like stomach sinking in terms of like, oh no, what's going to happen to him? Or also like my rage about the bed bug thing too, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, and and you walk a lovely line in, in, in this way where you you have this, the line like, you know, you describe how the, the discourse about bed bugs was in some ways a code among clinicians in your area. Like, well, we, we've, we're not going to get, that's like one thing we won't have. It's one, at least one material contagion that's going to separate us from them, right? And then you're like, oh, now that's been breached. But but the line that you have here, which is, which, which is I found delightful because it, it speaks to so many things, is that um, bed bugs are an acceptable way of being wholly disgusted by and hateful towards our clients, but in code. This interpretation risks being overly intellectualized, however. Bed bugs are quite real, with a tangible impact, and I had in this moment been robbed of my defensive capacity to dwell in the metaphoric, which was, again, I think there's something really complicated and wonderful going on in your paper in the way in which you deal with problems as both like real and objective, Mm -hmm. but also Mm -hmm. involving meaning in the same time, right? So like homelessness Mm -hmm. is a real thing, but also Mm -hmm. in the enactment and in the parapraxis you describe, you are you're not so much evicted from your office. It just becomes her office. Like you're no yeah. longer at home in your own office in this way. Right. And right. It, it all seemed to build in this, into that moment of where you have that explosion, where you it, it, it seemingly lose control, but it's precisely by losing that control in some ways. And then you, you invoke Epstein's work on this, right? That she's, for some people, the other person's love simply cannot be trusted until his hostility is out in the open. And I, I thought about that also alongside too, one of the images that you give in dealing with her, where it's like the toddler who can't help themselves, but who insists on doing it themselves, even as they insist that you help them help them do it on their own. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what I what I found so remarkable about this entire Sorry, well, I've many things, many things that are remarkable about it, but, but what struck me about it too was the way in which like you had described a person who had been surrounded, as you described, by an entire town and and, and mental health apparatus that was treating her with contempt mm-hmm. uh, and that had reached a point beyond exasperation. And something about the fact that 
you seemingly could keep giving, could do all these things inexhaustibly became, mm-hmm. I guess, a resistance to the, to the pursuit of, of the treatment. And, and at the point at which you actually were like, no, I actually have some hostility too, goddammit. And I'm going to mm-hmm. speak mm-hmm. that hostility directly to you in the way mm-hmm. that's messy and that isn't in code and that isn't along, you know, in back rooms and that isn't, you know, the, the abstract hostility of like an eviction form or like something right. else like that. Then somehow she can take you seriously as another person. The overarching metaphor in, in your paper is, is about bedbugs, right? Um, infestation. Um, and, and the paper is also about some, as you've been saying, some very harsh realities of counter-transference. Um, and both Patrick and I, as, as you know, we were talking about it as, as we were reading it, we were both like, okay, it's really hard to think about this without thinking about that famous, um, mm-hmm. rightfully famous Winnicott essay, Hate in the Counter-Transference, which, yes, I will drop in the show notes. So I wanted to ask you a couple of things related to counter-transference, Winnicott, hatred. Um, so first, I mean, Winnicott is all over both of these papers. And I wanted to ask you more broadly about what sort of influence he is on your work, whether as a clinician or a thinker, writer, um, or, or all of the above. And I wanted to also to ask if we can talk for a bit about how countertransference manifested in this case for you. Um, and perhaps to ask you to talk about how some of your colleagues who work with marginalized patients do or don't mm-hmm. confront their own countertransferences and, and some of the consequences. I know that's a bunch of questions in a row, so you know, feel free, <laughs> whatever order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Winnicott's paper on, on hate and the countertransferences, I think, one of the most humane things that's ever been written. And yeah. I think everyone should have a copy on their nightstand. Yep. I taught um, it this semester or last semester for the first time. Um, and it, it kind of blew my students away. It's so exceptional. And yeah, my first, so my first psychoanalytic therapist introduced it to me when I was working in residential treatment. So it, it, it's in some ways, it's kind of like the book of Genesis for me in, in the canon. Um, and I, I, so I think Winnicott as a thinker and as a provider of care, just he unconsciously informs everything I do. And I will add that, you know, um, again, Joel Cantor's work on not just Donald, but Claire Winnicott, Claire was the second wife, who was a social worker and then became a psychoanalyst. Um, and so their work together during the war with children who had been removed from their homes. I mean, that's kind of at the heart of, of hate and the counter-transference, one of these very disturbed kids that Donald sort of physically removes from the home and places outside and says, I hate you, um, before letting him back in. It's just such a wonderful uh, intervention. But, um, you know, the application of those ideas uh, with someone like Leona, I think, was what was so powerful for me in this case. and. So my counter-transference, you know, I mean, I think that my outburst, and I I thought obviously about this a tremendous amount because it wasn't strategic. Um, It it wasn't uh, sort of kind. It was, Steve Mitchell calls it a counter-transferential temper tantrum. So I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to kind of um, uh, idealize that, 
I mean, it worked, you, you know, I, I mean, I'm, and I'm glad it worked, but I, I think I would say subsequent uses of hate in my clinical practice have been a bit more mature, <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> uh, you know, but so Winnicott says that for some patients, they must be able first to locate objective hate in the other before they can trust objective love. And so the hate in the countertransference has to be not only felt, but accessible to the client, I think. Um, not through retaliation, um, which is, of course, how she had been getting, how she had been encountering hate in her community. And I think that was really one of the fundamental shifts for Leona, not just in our treatment, but generally in her recovery, is someone finally said it. Yeah. You know, rather than just acted it out. So, you know, I think that that's where the message for me about countertransference that I think is most valuable is how can that be um, brought to the more macro level? Mm. You, You know, like how can we show one another that our hate is something that has to be communicated before we can trust one another? And I think unhoused members of the community are kind of proof uh, of what happens when hate gets acted out rather than being able to be metabolized and actually put to use. So, you know, this is where I would say that I think folks providing housing and homeless services need to be empowered to speak openly about the hate that they're feeling for their clients. And so I think that there are an abundance of ways to support clinics and other coalitions in being able to do that. I don't know that it's always realistic, but um, I mean, I think that kind of transparency then can be a model for other stakeholders as a way to loosen that kind of rigid and fixed approach to homelessness that predominates in, in these systems of power, like city councils, state legislatures. I mean, I, I really think that to get to the PSA question, I think that we should be having public service announcements and entire ad campaigns around hate. Uh, I I really do. I I mean, it's, I think it would be so wildly distressing and unpopular, but I, but I think there's gotta be a breakthrough around this. I mean, we, we, we just, we hate each other so much in this country. We hate the unhoused. Um, and, and I think that this is an opportunity to really do work around this. You know, then that's for me, I think what Winnicott's paper is is ultimately calling for. I, th- I think there's something just to, to underscore for, for our audience, as many of whom, you know, may be balking at the idea of, of clinicians talking about hating their clients. Um, I think the two things to say here are, 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 are one, I, I think very much of that old Freudian line about how like love and hate aren't actually opposites. The actual opposite right. is indifference. Yeah. Is indifference. That's right. And that's like, and, and two, how from the perspective of people on uh, who, who come to these institutions as supplicants or who are interpolated into them forcibly, or in any event are in a position where, well, their feelings about the matter are generally secondary or relevant or reduced to simple, like just be grateful. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That from their perspective, all these seemingly rational, necessary, policy driven, market based, et cetera, all these simple things that are in the given for the majoritarian sort of like normative society are actually experienced as expressions of contempt, as as, as indifference, as profoundly 
cruel. And mm-hmm. I, I think here too, another analogy that may land for some of our audience, because I know people who have uh, you know, talked to people who have uh, attuned to this, people who have sought care for like addiction support or who are in recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, hell, just simply trying to get prescription continuity on, right. on certain right. things that yeah. may be life-saving, you have to be prepared to deal with, if not the outright contempt from from pharmacists or you know doctors, et cetera, but just like an entire system that basically treats you as though you are always already a disgusting addict who was capable of anything, right? Yep. And, and and that, I think, to, just to connect these things, seems very much a product of a situation in which, well, sure, there's, there's all sorts of predatoriness, there's all sorts of explicit cruelty, there's all sorts of reveling in that type of hatred. But also mm-hmm. it seems to be abetted by the fact that a lot of people just don't want to deal with certain populations with don't even want to acknowledge the existence of them, whether you go with addictions or they're people who, who are homeless, et cetera. But Which brings they, us back mm-hmm. to the indifference. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and so that refusal to acknowledge or to recognize sort of like any type of relationship gets in this kind of perverse sublimation gets expressed in social policies that drip with hate. Right. Which are That's exactly right. enactment, right? Yeah. As a, I mean, cause I, I, I think probably if you haven't read hate in the countertransference, well, you, you should. Uh, but, uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think it's easy to to listen to you, Brian, and be like, how is it that that uh, hate can be so humane? Which, of course, it is mm-hmm. in that paper, but it's the expression mm-hmm. of it in language as opposed mm-hmm. to the enactment of of hate and, and contempt um, and indifference that it's, mm-hmm. it's in that context that the statement of it could somehow be the more humane. You know, I have a story that I'm, well, I, so I, um, uh, I, I got pretty, pretty, um, burned out in my first job in the field 20 ish years ago with, it was working with very disturbed boys and they'd actually built this unit because for like the kind of the, the, the hardest to treat boys in the state of South Dakota and included a seclusion room and it was restrained facility. And I was, at one time, the kind of team coordinator, which was really just like the heavy, and it was not a good fit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got demoted, which was fine, but I would still kind of get called upon to do a lot of the physical management. And there was one boy who I loved and who was a terror. And um, at one point, he was acting up. It was over the holidays. And so we had a kind of skeleton crew or I don't know, the team was like differently organized and I was the one in charge. And Somehow I thought it was a good idea to remove him from the unit and take him outside while he was flailing and punching and punching himself and he'd give himself bloody noses and just be a mess. And and I was really, really, really losing um, my patience. And so I kind of threw him down to the ground. He's nine. Threw him down to the ground and I said, I'm so sick of your shit. And he looked frozen and then he just took off running. And I got fired. And when I was telling my therapist about it in my next session, I, mean, I was I was pretty horrified and felt very guilty. And she said to me, at least it was the truth. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously that has stayed with me and it wasn't consciously in my mind in this moment with Leona. But I, I've observed in my development as an analyst that just does, you know, person sort of these pretty key moments for me 
yeah. uh, around what it means to express hate and and um and how truthful it is yeah reading about these moments in in your paper there is a clear crystallization or distillation of something that's true about the relationship um but it also seems to be a catalyst for some sort of forward therapeutic movement mm-hmm. right and i think that's mm-hmm. part of what the 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 sort of like the recoil of like how could there's you know like real honest talk about the extent of negative countertransference mm-hmm. i think it's it's almost as verboten as as thinking about you know parents wishing that they hadn't had their children right it's it's in uh-huh. this kind of like off limits sphere of of discourse and so for us to you know for you to write this paper where it's like the therapeutic momentum mm-hmm. in some ways mm-hmm. comes from from that it's it's really you know it's staggering i tried to do an adaptation of it with a, a few colleagues for a housing conference um several years ago sort of taking the case example but then broadening it out to like how do we intervene with communities mm-hmm. and the idea that you would center hate was so abhorrent to the attendees <laughs> i mean people were walking out you know um it, it just doesn't it's like we don't have any kind of uh vocabulary yeah. Hate is a crime. Yeah. It's a specific kind of crime. And even then, I think that is, that's actually what I was thinking about here too, in, in relation to some, some work I'll cite in the show notes if people want, but like, there's something about the way in which hate as an emotion is, mm. is, is stigmatized or made taboo insofar as that it's associated with a type of like a, an, an atavistic or visceral descent. Like you've, de- you've, de- you've demeaned yourself, you've lost control, you've become something bestial and less than human. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, the opposite to that presumably is like uh, the model of an impossible person who never feels any type of hate or who disavows their hate. And I think anyone with psychodynamic, you know, sympathy would be like, well, that's going to go somewhere, right? It's not going to, mm-hmm. it's not going to, it's going to, it's not going to disappear. <laughs> yeah, but, but by the same token too, I think, and this is a, uh, there, there are a bunch of very good, and I think persuasive leftist critiques about like the way in which the notion of hate crimes, like, or the notion of the mm-hmm. hate frame is, is marshaled in, in, in criminal proceedings, right? Where, I mean, so many, only some things get called hate, right? right. I mean, is, 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 is the serial like male rapist, like, cause that's a, he's misogynist. That's a, we could argue, obviously there's a misogynistic hatred of women that animates this, but it doesn't get called a hate crime. When a police officer mm-hmm. like Daniel Holtzclaw, you know, uh, abuses and rapes several dozen, you know, sex workers, many of whom are trans, he's not convicted of a hate crime against them. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, in many states where now hate crime protection extends to law enforcement, if you write a cab on the side of a cop car, that's literally a hate crime. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the critique here, which is made, and, and many people can make this, right, is, is that in some ways the denomination of something as hateful or as being driven by hate is a way of setting aside and regulating a certain set of behaviors and persons as uniquely bad while actually reaffirming a broader kind of normalization of violence and indifference mm-hmm. in ways that, um, you know, are, are, are fundamentally pernicious and traumatogenic. I, right. and that's not to say like, like I, I don't want to like, get a mental image of like the emperor from star Wars being like, embrace your hate, let it flow through you. But like, <laughs> don't disavow it. Like talk, well, right. with it, talk. With well, it. Or, or, I mean, I, right. I mean, cause that's, I think, you know, the idea of well, how do people intervene when they see homelessness, they call them cops. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I guess my sense is that, the, you know, that the cops then become a kind of a toilet into which one can evacuate one's hate. Um, and I, I don't know that we have really the capacity to actually think about a sort of a post-policing world if we're not prepared to actually think about what happens when we don't have a receptacle into which we evacuate our hate, yeah. which is maybe a separate question around how police cultures can become so septic. There's a lot that could be said around that. Yeah, this you need to. It seems funny, right yeah, now. it seems funny to be related to like if I've any one thing I, I know from like my, my habit of reading a lot of cop memoirs and like a lot of cop blogs and stuff for some other work I do is that they that there are populations that they emphatically hate, right? Mm-hmm. A- and I don't think this is a zero sum thing, but I mean, if it were a zero sum thing, I'd much rather the hate be expressed between some clinicians in a caring uh-huh. environment or even in a you know a, a counter transferential enactment than it be expressed in a squad car by a guy with a gun and a baton, right? That he at least has things that are ready at hand that, you know, his hate can, and look, that's also going to spill out in his home too elsewhere. But like, I just wanted to, if you don't mind, this is completely an aside, but just, I wanted to to acknowledge the story that you said. Can I just tell you a a story that this is? Abby, I think maybe you've heard this once, but uh, in high school, we- uh, You're a deep well, maybe not. Maybe not, I don't know. I I, I spend a a good part of my- uh, uh, of uh, my late teens volunteering at a, a, a place, basically a place for, for where multiply developmentally disabled oh, or I otherwise troubled children were were sat. In, and it was, you know, a remarkable institution that provided a great deal of care, but also the character of the class composition of the, the, the children there was one where kids with cognitive issues, uh, kids who were uh, autistic in some way or, or had spectrum sort of disabilities were together with kids who were just conduct disorder type stuff or higher level sort of like hyperactivity yeah. type issues. And so it was, it was a, in a situation where it was two 20, 30 something women teachers and me and 35 kids, it was a, a, a chaotic situation to manage. Yeah. And, and I also, because I was apparently that was just what they, they trained me a little bit, but like when kids were physically hurting one another, I had to restrain a couple of children. Right. And I, on the one hand, like I, I, I hated it and I hated myself for doing it, but also yeah. like I was angry at the kids and I tried not to communicate yeah. that through the touch. Right. Yeah. But also like when this is happening, it, it I don't know, like I, I can't, maybe I'm not like an Aikido master or something, but like I can't summon like stillness and love as I restrain someone when they try to bite me or to try to bite another person. Right. right. Like anger or some sort of biological substrate that we associate with the effect of anger is necessary for performing that task. And mm-hmm. just to tell you the story that I just want, it, it, one of these, we would play in a, in a padded room in the basement, <laughs> uh, like a mm-hmm. jungle gym and type stuff, right? And there was this one kid, and I remember I loved this little kid. He was maybe six or seven and was being raised by his grandmother and had some, some cognitive things, but also clearly just she wasn't, she was at her wit's end raising him. And in any event, he was extremely active and uh, had some issues with, with with feeling pain, but also clearly, like he, he apparently was desensitized to a lot of it or had some sort of like neurological stuff. I don't really know the details of mm-hmm. some of this, but he was also big into hitting other people and like laughing and thinking it was affectionate. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember mm-hmm. there was a, it was one of these scenes where like, I think like one of the, there are 30 kids in this room. One of the other teachers has to go out to go to the bathroom. And I'm like, just trying to manage this. And I'm like 18 and there's these two twins, uh, both of whom I believe were autistic and they would walk mm. around together. They were almost entirely nonverbal. I don't think I ever heard them talk and they would just hold hands and they, they were, they were, they were a lovely pair, right? They were just quietly moving around. And then this other kid 
I, I remember seeing him, I was across the room, he's climbing the jungle gym and he's on the top of the jungle gym and he looks down at them, he looks at me and he launches himself in the air like he's going to do a hammer strike blow right on the head of these two, of one of the heads of these two girls and they don't see him. And I, without thinking, this was just like complete reflex, I pick up a dodgeball and I've got, I got my hand around another kid who's been falling over and this kid has actually had a shunt in their head so they couldn't fall over. It was like really like complete madness. I grab this mm -hmm. dodgeball and I just whip it across the room. It connects with the kid midair. He somersaults over and falls behind a table. And one, I'll just stipulate I'm not a physically active person. I'm not particularly coordinated. This was kind of remarkable that this actually happened. It was probably because I was pissed off. But also there was this brief moment when he went behind that table and I was like, Holy shit, I have just killed a child. Oh, this child. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I I it was I can still feel that like I've just killed a child. And yeah. thankfully, immediately he just pops up, he's laughing, he's giggling, and he runs away to give someone else a hug. But it was like that <laughs> moment in the yeah. breach of like, well, what does a person do? Mm -hmm. And it, of course, this wasn't a verbal intervention, this wasn't a verbal enactment, right? But it somehow you you have to act. Right? or at least yeah. in these situations where one does have to act as opposed to like calling in the police, et cetera, you're, mm -hmm. you're going to approach that with your entire person. And that's going to involve some negative affects. That's going to involve right. hatred. But sometimes that actually can have a protective function and hopefully right. no one gets hurt. So clearly people can't. No, I mean, it, it's stirring. I, I, we could just keep going on with war stories. I, yeah. I have an abundance <laughs> of them as well. Yeah. I want to ask you about one of the themes that, I mean, it's clear in your career trajectory, but also it's a, it's a persistent preoccupation in, in all of the writing um, that, that we've read of yours is about, you know, the sort of gulfs between psychoanalysis and social work, but also, you know, your um, kind of consistent attempts at, at a rapprochement between between mm -hmm. those two things. Um, and so, you know, for instance, in in the Bedbugs essay, um, the language of housing and, and home feels uh, literal. It is literal, but it's also metaphorical. You're, you're working with Leona, who's dealing with chronic housing instability. Um, you're working directly to keep her housed. Um, you're managing these deeply difficult experiences of counter-transference that involve your own feelings of homelessness uh, you know, being ejected from your office, et cetera. And at the same time, in, in a quite a poignant way, I think, seeking to find a way to be at home in psychoanalysis as, as a discipline and, and as an analyst in, in training. Mm -hmm. and, and so I wanted our listeners to hear a little snippet from the opening of this paper, um, because you open it with a dream that you have and you're, you're at APSA, um, you know, which is, which is held at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. So, you know, fancy East side. And so this is now, this is me quoting Brian. In the dream, I am staying at a transitional housing program on a cot draped in sheets swarming with bed bugs. I awake in the dream with a sense of panic. 
Not only am I running late for the first meeting, I'm now overrun with bed bugs and will potentially infest the entire assembly of psychoanalysts in attendance. I question whether, as a social worker in a community mental health clinic, I am at home amongst psychoanalytic colleagues. Are Leona and I welcome at the Waldorf Astoria, bed bugs and all? Close quote. So, I mean, I'm not going to attempt to to interpret your dream except in the way that you already do in the, in the essay um, about this gulf between psychoanalysis and and social work. And so I'm hoping you can talk to us a bit about that gap and some of the ways that you're trying to close or, or to bridge it. Um, so I'm thinking about theoretical approaches, but also about the policy implications of, of your work. So can you talk to us about how social work and psychoanalysis relate to one another as institutions, as, as approaches, as, as worldviews, and wherever else you want to go? I mean, the, you know, the gulf is considerable, but it, I don't think it needs to be. And I, that's a kind of a chronic frustration of mine, both, well, both amongst social workers, psychoanalysts towards social work, but I would say maybe more so social workers towards psychoanalysis. I mean, I, there's like a swath of history uh, I could try to cover, but I, I'd feel inadequate to that challenge. I'm not a historian. Um I'm, I'm both sort of animated by and also quite exhausted by the lament about how badly things have gotten in the social work academy. It's a somewhat um, common refrain amongst psychoanalytic social workers that um, hearkening to some good old days. Um, I, I never encountered those good old days. I mean, like um, there's sort of been this longstanding battle between these two wings of social work, between kind of the policy or the macro side and the clinical or the micro side, then that's not even bringing in a psychoanalytic clinical perspective, just clinical. You know, and I mean, the origin of clinical, it means at the bedside. But my my program, you know, and I had a good education. I, I liked it, um, but they wouldn't even use the word clinical. Uh, they, it was a family-centered track or the macro track. So like they wouldn't even say clinical. Um, and when I wrote my thesis, which was on the efficacy of, well, it was on therapy for therapists, um, my thesis chair, bless her. I mean, she really helped me deepen it, but she said, well, who says therapy even works? You know, I mean, which required me to do a lit review update with all of the efficacy of psychotherapy stuff. And that was great. I mean, obviously it was important, but it was coming from a truly skeptical place. She was not interested in, in, a social workers becoming therapists. Wow. Um, you know, real social workers in the streets, it's Jane Adams, it's the whole yeah. house, it's it's justice, it's um uh it's not in private practice. You know, and so I think that there's been a long-standing you know, cynicism, not that there's not truth in it about folks going to get their MSW so they can just kind of become licensed and then open a private practice. And I I so <laughs> I have lots of thoughts about all of that, but I don't, I, I mean, um, I guess my, my interest, uh, cause I, 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 is really thinking about this false dichotomy between the macro and micro. I just, I'm just so disinterested in participating in that split. I think it's such a waste, mm -hmm. but this, and it really goes even beyond macro micro. It's, it's this tension between the psychic and the social, yeah. which is yeah. eating up non-social work, psychoanalytic 
organizations left and right. I mean, they just can't, they can't tolerate <laughs> that these are, these are not mutually exclusive phenomena. And, um, and that interest in one somehow means neglect of the other. I just, I just don't, I don't believe that it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I, you know, social work attends to the person and environment. I mean, that's like a core piece of kind of a social work perspective. And I, I think that social work, you know, graduate programs particularly have this feeling that psychoanalysis is mired in the medical model, that it's pathologizing, social work is strengths-based, that psychoanalysis isn't empirically validated, which is rubbish. You know, there's a really great paper by Gerald Brandel, who is uh, a psychoanalytic social worker and academic, I think at Wayne State in, in Ann Arbor um, from 2013 called psychoanalysis in the halls of social work academe can this patient be saved and he really lays out the whole problem for academics particularly um, both clinically oriented but more specifically psychoanalytically oriented so i would encourage readers to or listeners rather to look up that article i think it 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 just so perfectly captures the tensions but, you know, there's a sort of a joke amongst a lot of social work psychoanalytic folk that that um, without social work, there would be no psychoanalysis um, because uh, the inventor of the phrase, the talking cure, Breuer's Anna O, went on and became a social worker yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah, kind did. of one of the you know origins of social work. So the, the two seem like have this sort of early origin story that's quite entwined. I guess, you know, in terms of how I come at this I see the clinical in, in everything. I mean, I, I think that um, all systems contain the potential for pathology, whether it's, you know, an organism to a society. And, and so maybe individuals, families, and groups are primarily targeted. But I, I think that there are psychological forces at play always. This is where, you know, Beyond's work is so critical yeah. that, you know, the psychotic process that can occur in a group like a board of directors, like Congress, <laughs> you know, that that any group could start to exhibit splitting, projective identification, these kind of paranoid schizoid operations. I think Bala says, you know, groups can go mad. Yeah. And do. I literally do not understand how anyone can ever experience a faculty meeting without Beyond is something that I have said to to Dan many times, but also to to my colleagues. Yeah. I completely, completely agree. Yeah. I don't know how I couldn't sit through board of directors meetings without being aware of the pull, you know, to be kind of the messiah or to just start gabbing and to flee from the, the sort of the task. You know, I also think organizations can be traumatized. Yeah. Um, I think organizations, especially nonprofits, can behave in this very deprivational way that sort of mimics families that are impoverished. Uh, I mean, I, the entire way that we fund uh, nonprofits in this country is so obscene to me. Um, the sort of withered nipple that you, everyone's chasing after, um, the sort of drip drip of money for the things that like the arts and healthcare, you know, I mean, the entire care economy being stripped from, you know, policy, all, all of this suggests like pretty traumatized systems. And I think that that trickles down to the people that they're supposed to serve. So I guess I, you know, I just feel that environments mimic their inhabitants and back and forth and back and forth. And so I think that our interventions that are the most valuable and, and enduring, whether it's 
like an acute intervention to address a chronic fixed characterological condition, you know, all the way up to long-term services are the best ones are psychoanalytic. They just have the best outcomes. Um, and that's why I, I don't know. That's why I see a psychoanalytic and a social work perspective as being so compatible. It seems something I want to underscore here too, just to again affirm that listeners should read, read your work is, is is that were those moments in which you document the specific financial costs that Leona's care, or at least yeah. what she was receiving from institutions mm-hmm. that would call it care, amounted to, and, and you know, as I've, I've heard. Different different places refer to such people in different ways, right? I've heard the phrase like frequent frequent flyer, et cetera, yeah. right? But like yeah. heavy service user or whatever the, the the preferred lexicon is, like these are there's a tremendous amount of cost of all, involved on, on the level of like the taxpayer burden, on the level of, of opportunity cost, et cetera, in terms of a system that only basically deals with people in crises and in the current sort of model of, of care, of, of like triage, retroactive care that we have. And then realizing as, as you crunch the numbers, right? And again, let's, let's, I'll stipulate that for, I'm not an empiricist. And also on some level, I think people are, we should throw all the money in the world at people, right? It's, it's, it, the numbers don't even matter. But on another level, the numbers do matter to the extent to which it actually was much more cost-saving and much more efficaciously healing to have right. an encounter in the therapeutic model that yeah. you provided. And at that point, and I think this really underscores the point that you're making, we have to ask, like, what's the contra the idea of, like, market efficiency or, like, the rationality of capitalism? What mm-hmm. are we to make of the drivers of a system or the dividends of a system that is so incredibly wasteful mm-hmm. and that doesn't help people. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, I think we can look to the things we actually do spend money on, right? You know, whether it be arms or policing, right? I think it was $150 million on fair jumping now in New York City mm-hmm. enforcement to, to, to recoup $150,000 of like it's, but, mm-hmm. but that is beyond the financial, the dividend appears to be like libidinal. It appears to be actually an investment in perpetuating certain types of cruelty in a certain type of disciplinary thing. And I think you're too, the, the example you give in, in one of your papers of, of uh, coming across while walking with your husband, uh, coming across a man uh, mm-hmm. suffering from a fentanyl overdose and mm-hmm. people just walking around him or not being able to necessarily know how to deal with him. It, it really does feel sometimes like and I, I'm saying something here from an analytic perspective that maybe if I were to if I were to say it in a different political science, more people would accuse me of being conspiratorial, right? But it does feel like one of the features of the system as we currently have it is that the suffering of people is kept public in this way mm-hmm. as like a kind of disciplinary lesson, mm-hmm. or that there's this constant like, particularly in a society that has less and less in the way of a social safety net, mm-hmm. we have this kind of like this implicit threat that. Well, there for the grace of your own best decisions could go you. Yep. So keep it moving. And at yep. that point, it, 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 that makes sense to me from a psychoanalytic perspective as an output of a traumatized and traumatizing society that disavows certain things, even as it indulges in others. Mm-hmm. But it's not necessarily legible from the perspective of like a policy white paper or from the the logic of you know a, a budget or something else like mm-hmm. that, precisely because it's operating on the level of, of of something that traverses individuals, families, and entire societies. And it's unconscious, right? Yeah. But budgets and, and and sort of legislation don't have minds. 
So it's hard to interrogate them psychoanalytically, but but there is clearly something operating unconsciously. And and I I mean I guess I I frame that as a hatred of dependence. I mean yes. the, yeah. the the sort of quadruple amputee uh, overdosed homeless man on the streets is sort of the representation of abject need. Yeah. And um and that we're all sort of repulsed by it. And we hate that we're dependent. I mean, I think we hate that we're a dependent species. Yeah. Yeah. You're giving me a beautiful segue to, to ask about um, some of what you're, you're thinking and writing about now, because so much of it is about, about dependence and, you know, that ambivalent relationship to it. And um, Patrick and I, I read this essay of yours, um, Porosity and Preoccupation, Queer Thoughts on Psychoanalytic Care. Um, and, and we're especially interested in terms of your call and, and I think I said this before, but I'll say it again. I, I see this as very continuous and, and sort of creating like a theoretical scaffolding of some of what's incipient in, in the Bedbugs paper. You want a move from the idea of what you term psychoanalytic treatment to psychoanalytic care, um, which is something that you also call, um, quote, a queering of what psychoanalysis is allowed to generate. Um, and it's this complicated account of what you call the erotics of care. That, and it builds to this really, you know, lovely and capacious vision of what psychoanalysis can be and, and can do. Um, and while it is clearly underwritten by your experience as a social worker, it does seem to me, um, you know, there's a fidelity, there's a faithfulness to, to psychoanalysis in there as well. Um, you know, the idea that some of these resources exist within psychoanalysis since its inception. Um, you know, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about, you talk about Freud as a willing bottom for some of the the hysterics that um, are, are foundational for, for the mm-hmm. you know, beginning of the field. And since, um, as you know, most <laughs> folks who have been listening to us for any length of time will know we are obsessed with footnotes on Ordinary Unhappiness, I wanted to read some of this long footnote you have in this piece about the concept um, of help specifically, which I read as one manifestation of of this theme of dependence. Um, So I want to read this and ask you to tell us a little more about it. Um, So again, I'm quoting Brian. Help has a concerned place in analytic circles. Just don't tell them you can help, I've been advised when starting with a new analytic patient. Analysts I love and admire have cautioned against being helpful, or perhaps more accurately, wishing or promising to be helpful. Then I hear a beloved elder social worker clapping back. What the hell are we doing here if we're not trying to help? This underlines a distinct tension between psychoanalysis and social work, which I find plays out both in the marginalizing of social workers within the psychoanalytic establishment and the antagonism towards psychoanalytic perspectives in many social work programs. Is there a phobia of being helpful in analysis? And, you know, I read that and there is, you know, there's that, that, that sort of like Lacanian phrase of like hitting the real. This is, this is something that for me, like hit the real, that, that, Mm. that last question. Um, Can you talk to us a bit about this phobia of helpfulness within analysis and the sort of alternative vision to that which animates your work. So 
you know, what are some of the fantasies and anxieties of care that psychoanalysis entertains um, and or denies itself, what gets lost in them? Um, and, and what kind of possibilities do you see opening up if we try to put the modalities of care involved in psychoanalysis into practical engagement with, with those of social work? Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is going back to Winnicott um, and his impact on me and, again, kind of the way that I've, I've seen that applied in clinical case management, you know, and with Joel Cantor's work. And Winnicott talked about management. He used the word management mm-hmm. uh, as this sort of provision of ego support from the caregiver to the child. And, and so it's developmentally oriented and it's titrated according to need, you know, like a food schedule. Yeah. Um, so things like food regulation, um, closing the blinds when the sun is hitting the infant's eyes, all the way up to helping completing schoolwork, you know, thinking about where you're going to go to college. I mean, these are all things that a, a child, a developing person gets help with. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, I I just did this recently with one of my, actually the, the patient I call Marcus. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he needed help kind of getting his resume organized and and chat GPT wasn't really hitting the mark. So he actually called in a human um, to provide help, which I think is really, really lovely. And there's a whole other kind of wing of thoughts about all of the implications of AI and in, in the context of, you know, help. Yeah, yeah. But so... I mean, I, I guess I think very practically about, you know, following like kind of language of housing, uh, a continuum of care, a continuum of psychoanalytic care from, you know, acute crisis intervention to clinical case management that's intensive but titrated and community-based to, you know, participation that looks more traditional in a therapeutic relationship, a client, you know, um, coming into an office and so forth. and. And I think that titrated models of care can allow for attention to be paid not simply to meeting basic needs and essential needs, but also to the human desires of clients that are being served. Um, So that way we're like attending to both short-term and long-term, both to need and to wish, you know, which is where I think back to that experience with Leona where she was, you know, complaining that she didn't have apartment numbers on her door and that her, her faucet was leaking. And I found that somehow entitled or demanding, you know, that, that there's this kind of ascetic expectation that a person just be housed and just sort of this kind of stark survivalistic approach to how we engage. What about aesthetics? I mean, like not just fixing a, a leaky faucet, but what about the comfort of the, the mattress that she sleeps on or, how it smells or, you know, how it feels. I mean, like these kind of ideas of beauty and and sensuousness that, I mean, I'm kind of hesitant to even go in that direction because if we're talking about homelessness and people dying on the streets to bring in this idea of like attending to what people want, not just what they need, you know, I, I fear it will smack of a kind of the stereotype of psychoanalysis only treating the worried well and making a ton of money and, but like, why, why is there that split? I, that's right. one of those splits. Mm-hmm. Why not both and? Well, right, exactly. But there is a split, I think, between need and wish as it gets theorized in psychoanalysis. Um, you know, what are we here to do? How are we here to engage? And so I, I think that that's where psychoanalysts can have their own ambivalence about this. Um, 
sort of what's the therapeutic action? What are we here to do? I mean, if you facilitate too much dependence, will the patient never leave? You'll never actually terminate, you know? And, and so I, I think that meeting a need gets conflated with gratifying a wish, which is sort of, you know, like verboten in analysis. Don't do that. But I also think that there's a fear of indulging certain developmental needs, mm. you know, that might obscure the importance in, in, in psychoanalysis of the limits forced upon us by reality, the necessity to face those limits. I mean, that's kind of an analytic ethos um, best exemplified by the fact that the session has a time limit. Sure, sure. You say we're over, you know, analysis comes to an end at a certain point. So I think it, it gets into some of that kind of you know, anxiety that you're, you're somehow gratifying something and not actually, you know, you're, you're participating in the patient, not facing reality. I found this aspect of your paper, particularly uh, generative for me, and I'm still sort of stewing on it, particularly in light of what you're saying, because that gap between wish and need, right. Between the, like the sort of the desired thing, the nice thing, or whatever it is, the, 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 the idiosyncratic thing that the person wants, the nice thing that they would like to have versus like the, the thing that we could all reasonably agree people must have, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Like, or like the necessary, like the Maslow's hierarchy of need shit versus like the, the quote unquote aesthetic, right? That, that that's, mm-hmm. I, I found myself seeing that as like one of those spaces or like the, 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 the tension between those two things seems to be precisely where we encounter enactments in terms of like the cruelty, the punishment, or like mm-hmm. the expectations of tough love, et cetera, which seem mm-hmm. very much to be bound up in a social order. And I'm here specifically thinking of modern capitalism, which is all about like, well, the rejection of dependence, but also the association of independence with the highest form of human good. And independence mm-hmm. is understood as the ability to not just satisfy basic needs, but also to self-actualize through consuming nicer things, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there's some deep historic roots for this. I found myself even reaching for like a Carlo Ginsburg and actually Sylvia Federici on this and thinking about like those, that moment in the I mean, probably situated in the late medieval era, early Renaissance, 30 years war, whenever, basically, whenever like the, the holistic scheme of like the Catholic church falls apart and it's no longer like, mm-hmm. well, the poor exist, they're always going to exist, but you have to care for them to now everyone's mm-hmm. on their own in a market. The people mm-hmm. who are not successful have simply made bad choices. And thus we kind of like cross apply that old rhetoric of associating misfortune with sinful, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. misconduct to just being like this, this is in any event, we now as the, as the nascent bourgeoisie, we can either, you know, ignore the, the, the crow outside the village who previously would give alms to, or we kill her as a witch. But in any event, we don't have a social relationship to her. Right. And mm-hmm. in a very modern iteration of this i find it alongside this i people being like well whether it be like people being like well you can't we have to means test everything we can't let Mm. these people use their their snap benefits Mm. to i don't know buy a cadbury egg or like no we can't let people go to college they're going to learn quote-unquote basket weaving which by the way we talk about that the origins of that and like trauma theory earlier but that's that bracket that entirely but this idea (laughs) somehow that like precisely when we're talking about that gap between wish and need Generally speaking, we are not just thinking about it for ourselves. We're legislating what other people's wishes yeah. are legitimate and what their needs should be. Right. 
and scripting out all these sort of positions of illegitimate needs, of the gratitude that they should have. And it's always conditional. It can always be withheld. There's never any basic provision of anything, even in this scheme, which seems to try and like work between those things. Mm-hmm. And hence you have, I mean, I, the, the only other last, last, these strange formations where the people who become both these objects of a total indifference, you literally step over them, but also of like really cathected hatred. And here, I, I mean, some of the mm-hmm. things that have been, I mean, I, 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 having paid attention to the issue for the past like two decades, like the, the, the specific rhetoric on like the things that Jesse Waters now says on like Fox about homeless people, right? Like mm-hmm. it, or, or the rhetoric about quote unquote San Francisco and what needs to be done to the homeless there. Like it's, it's properly like genocidal or, or like this murderous in terms of it's mm-hmm. like the way it tarries with this. But there's something about, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is like the false rule of necessity or like the the social conventions that determine what gets to be a need and what gets to be a wish mm-hmm. sneaks into that distinction and reduplicates itself constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even when we're it's such that even actually I think it's interesting too because even the people who are or precisely it's the people who care about other people and like their wishes and needs or who are in the helping professions. And as you say too, this is all overcoded because so many of the helping professions are associated with women workers, workers of color, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that care work in general is, is not coincidentally devalued. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. It's feminized. It's racialized. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's, it's, it's simultaneously made essential, but essential and disposable in this way, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Essential is disposable in, in, under capitalism in this kind of twisted way. But that there's something about that that is, it invites all these ways in which people can disidentify with the other and punish the other, but also see themselves as edifying the other and uplifting the other and sort mm-hmm. of like doing some sort of outreach work that's just on the level of vibes. It's not actually helping anybody. Right. And right. it seems to be the core of a problem that's, that, that seems very core. To, I'm sorry, it's one of my own preoccupations here too, but there's something about social co- political contingency that is exposed mm-hmm. in this. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, I, I'm, just, I'm just saying that I think your paper made me really spoke to me in this domain. I, I, well, you know, the piece that I guess I start to zoom in on in, in the second paper um, is the, 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 the ways in which I think hate can get mobilized to defend against how pleasurable dependence actually is. Yeah. Both, both, you know, like that, like the provision of care and the reception of care feels good. Mm-hmm. And, and so I call it erotic, the, the erotics of care, that there's an erotic pleasure mm-hmm. in providing care that I, I think troubles us. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that the idea of, of not just sort of feeding until full, but like hanging on because it feels good. Yeah. That's something that feels so anathema and almost unthinkable, not just within psychoanalysis, but broadly, that I think we, we, we sort of erect these extraordinarily hateful systems to kind of camouflage the fact that we all just kind of want to kick it and feel good and take care of each other and like talk to someone 45 minutes a day, day after day for years Mm -hmm. and be like listened to and really listened to that. That is, you know, Wallace calls Freud's discovery of the phylogenetic wish. 
Um, you know, and I think beyond said that, you know, prior to Freud, this was a, a, a thought without a thinker. I mean, that psychoanalysis has, has sort of been waiting to be discovered. And, and, and I mean, I'm sure there's lots of different ways to, to define what that specific discovery may be. And I guess I, I'm focusing particularly on the idea that there's an erotic charge in being taken care of. So, you know, we put a lot of energy, I think, into not letting that come into consciousness. I wonder if it has to do, I'm just spitballing here, with the way in which what you're describing in terms of care is an ongoing relational orientation mm-hmm. as opposed to a a quick fix triage yeah. or a product mm-hmm. that you can buy or a mm-hmm. given outcome. It's Just something that can be completed, yeah, right? in a in a kind of set amount of of of, of time or space, yeah. And I was thinking about the, again in, in relation to the first paper, the the, the expectation that when, when Leona leaves, well, she wants when she gets housing, then she must like literally, or at least is supposed to, kind of like leave her previous life behind, right? Yeah. She can't have the people visit her friends or, or, or loved ones who were homeless. They can't visit. They can, certainly can't stay. Mm-hmm. Now that she's being taken care of, she should take care of herself. Right. And, and that means she can't care for other people. It's the condition of the possibility of, of yeah. her actually receiving care is to cease to give that care. Yeah. It's, it's, well, and I think that that leads to some very important policy implications. Yeah. I mean, housing vouchers and things may have changed. I haven't been as immersed in this world in a while, but I doubt it um, that, you know, you, you can't just let anyone stay with you. They have to have a voucher too. And then you have to have a different type of apartment unit. I mean, this sort of co-housing, all of these different ideas. I mean, basically all of our housing policy is predicated on the idea that it's best to be alone. Yeah. Which is really fucked up. You know what I mean? It makes me think about how, how the hell did we come to that? That you're actually supposed to leave home, go far away, not have relationships with family. And I, I'm speaking in a very particular cultural sure. register. I realize there's tremendous variability around this. but. Right. Kind of predominant or supremacist. That's idea. an aspirational exactly. way of, of living. That, that's certainly what informs how legislation gets drafted and how vouchers are administered, mm-hmm. how housing is built. It, it's to, you know, like, right, I'm ambivalent about the fact that I end this sort of case ago and, you know, Leona ends up happily ever after in an assisted living facility by herself. I mean, my hope is that there's a sense of community there, yeah, of course. There's an asterisk next to that. That's not necessarily what she wanted. She resisted that tooth and nail mm-hmm. for good reason. Mm-hmm. You describe it even as, as an experience possibly of freedom for her at times, right? That, that she could, you know, yet, and none of this is incompatible with saying that the precarity on the streets isn't a matter of survival in the barest sense. But, but No, that, and it's not romanticized. No, yeah. Paper, I, just to be clear. I don't think yeah. any of us are doing it, but I think it is, and this is, again, another sort of half-baked, perhaps covid thought, right? But there does seem to be something about that situation you described where like the ideal form, the fully self-actualized person, which is just sort of given under this system is like the, the atomized rentier worker, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Who leaves home, can travel between job and job, lives alone and conforms Mm -hmm. to the appropriate housing and consumption models. Mm -hmm. I don't want to simply use this as a metaphor, but there is a kind of like homelessness to that being. Right. You mm-hmm. don't actually have a home. You're just a, you're just a bit of human capital and you have to manage yourself. Mm-hmm. And if that's the normative expectation and if like the stick that we prod people is the specter of, well, there is no social safety net and you're one paycheck away from being on the streets yourself. Then in like the most 
twisted possible way, quote unquote, we're always going to have the poor because mm-hmm. the people at the center of the system, or at least the nominal center of the system, are impoverished sort of spiritually and in their connections to one another. And we constantly mm-hmm. need these other people who are literally homeless. To like, well, they have it worse, right? Mm-hmm. And all they want to be is like us, and we just need to reintegrate them into ourselves. And so there's a kind of vicious parallelism in the denial of connection and the denial of relations, which I see your work as robustly responding to by asserting the need for care as ongoing relations mm-hmm. and continuity in our lives, whether homed or housed or unhoused, et cetera. And, and that's as yeah. pleasure. Yes, exactly. Right? As yeah. pleasurable right. for, for, for multiple participants in it. Yeah. Right. right. It's a positive good, right? It's not just a necessity. Before before we wind up, um, I'm hoping we can talk both in in, in practical and affective terms mm-hmm. um, about something that we've been in some ways engaging with all along, but about living with and alongside people experiencing housing insecurity. Um, and when when we were putting together questions for you, Patrick brought up to me. Um, I, about, I think it was about 10 years ago that we used to, you know, in, in Philly, um, where, where we're based, um, we would see these PSAs all over the place um, that were, and they were good PSAs, right? And they basically were mm-hmm. something like, okay, what do you, what should you do? What can you do if you see someone outside during inclement weather? This was, I remember this, this was during that, like the polar vortex year um, when there was just, you know, mm. constant snow, constant dangerous, uh, dangerously cold weather. And, you know, some of the things that these PSAs said was like, don't call the cops, talk to the person direct. I mean, they didn't say don't call the cops, but they said talk to this person directly. The, the subtext was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would provide links to various shelters and services. Um, and we, I mean, we haven't seen these around so much anymore, but could you walk us and our listeners through how perhaps um, to approach such situations or what to think about when we encounter them? I mean, I'm also very cognizant, you know, that this is going to air at the end of the year, um, you know, during, during a time where it is awfully cold out in uh, a lot of America where we're mm-hmm. based. I mean, I think, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, you know, yeah, not calling the cops, uh, carrying gloves so you can lift the person off of the sidewalk into their wheelchair so you don't have to call the paramedics because they're not going to do shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, being prepared to help with overdoses, getting training on that front. Yeah. Um, you know, feeling equipped to actually engage with somebody who might be psychotic. Uh, providing resources if you have them and giving people money, you know, mm-hmm. like we should, we should just be prepared to give people money too. But, you know, I think the challenge is also, I think we should have PSAs about hate. Like I said, I mean, I, I you know, I think that we really need to be helping people face hate because in some ways there is a sort of an objective hate to this, seeing somebody lying in the middle of the street, I think can stir Hey, and I, I guess I want to say that that's that's an understandable feeling to have, yeah. and it's only when you can have that that you might be able to encounter objective love. 
But that's, I think, one of the risks is if you are then in touch with feeling love, you could have your heart broken by the situation. Mm. Uh, and the fact that there may be nothing you can actually do in that moment, um, but go to your own home and be haunted by what you've seen. Uh, and I think that's the real challenge is to not disavow that kind of experience, but to think about it and to try to then stay in, you know, stay in touch with all of the anxieties that get stirred in us when we see this kind of abject need. And, and I think try to face the anxieties in a way that we could then perhaps work with the housed, you know, who I think have anxieties that they don't feel have a container or a psychic home. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that the, the council woman whose constituents are constantly emailing and calling about the shelter that's being designated in their zip code. I, I don't know who's listening to her anxieties. Somebody needs to be listening to her anxieties and helping her contain those anxieties so she can meaningfully contain the anxieties of her constituents so that the fucking shelter can get built. You know, and so I think there's such an important task to be really thinking about the housed who have more political power because they have more financial power. Yeah. I mean, th those are the fixed kind of sclerotic systems that are immovable. Um, that in my mind, psychoanalysts should be very interested in those kinds of deeply fixed characterological problems. I mean, so. I'm really not sidestepping the powerful need to help the homeless, but we can't do much until the housed loosen their fucking grip and allow policies that make way for people to get housed in, in actually sustainable, long-term, pleasurable ways. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, before we let you go, can you tell us two things? One, where we can, where our listeners can find you on the internet. And two, uh, for those who might be going to, um, to APSA in February in New York, um, when and where you might be giving the lecture that is based on the second paper we have just been discussing. So I'm, I have a website. <laughs> Folks can find me at uh, gosmiththerapy.com. Uh, I have some writing there. You can contact me for some other writing if you're interested, or we could just have a conversation. Um, and then, yeah, I'll be giving the porosity and preoccupation paper for the, the Tico lecture on Saturday, February 10th. I think it's from two to four. And I believe if folks go to APSA's website, um, they can look up registration details there. And I'd, I'd love to see people. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It's, it's really been my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Um, if we could ask one other thing of you, please rate and review on the podcast platform of your choice. We appreciate it so much. Um, and as always, if you need more ordinary unhappiness in your life, you can find us on Patreon. 
at uh, patreon.com backslash ordinary unhappiness. This has been an episode of Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin, and today I was joined by Patrick Blanchfield and Brian Gosmith. This podcast is produced by Dan Yowell. Theme music by Formal Chicken. Mm-hmm.